for another exciting episode of No Driving Gloves, where Derek, John, and Will will use over 75 years combined industry knowledge to bring you a bare-knuckled view on the collector car hobby. So let's get rolling. Thank you for joining us again this week. Derek, what were you doing this week, or Will, whoever wants to step up to first? I've been working. I'm really good at that. I do that a lot. I try to avoid it like the plague. (laughs) Who says you're good at working? Okay, correction. I work a lot. <laughs> I don't really know if I'm good at it. <laughs> oh, you're at work a lot, right? Okay, okay, yes. I'm at work a lot. Um, I make it look like I'm doing things. Uh, um, yeah, that's about what I do. You're good at looking like you're working. No, I'm just good looking. Oh, well, maybe. We'll find out when we go video, right? Exactly. Do you do anything exciting this week, Will, or were you just uh, packing a little uh, overnight bag for SEMA? Yeah, actually, I've been getting ready for that all week. I'll be there from Saturday to Saturday, so I'll be there the entire time, preferably like flying in on Wednesday and flying out on Saturday, but we had planned on, we were planning on uh, debuting a vehicle at SEMA this year. So that was the reason for being out there for so long. But unfortunately, uh, that vehicle is not going to make it. You know, I'll be out there from Saturday to Saturday. So if anybody's out there and would like to meet up with me, just uh, send us a message through you know, Facebook or Instagram or something like that. Uh, I'll be, if you look at the, uh, they call it, (laughs) this is funny. They call it celebrity meetings. I don't know why they call it that, but if you look in the celebrity meetings handout, they give you, it's got the times that I'll be with, uh, Carmen at AM hot rod glass booth. So wait, 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 uh, wait, 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 wait. I I know. I know. You're saying that, SEMA thinks you're a celebrity? No, Carmen thinks I'm a celebrity. She uh she puts me she puts me down for that every year and um the reason that she does that is I've installed several of her windshields and, and glass and stuff and a lot of people come by and have questions about installs and and how to make it look correct and whatnot and what rubber to use and uh more what not to do than what to do and so that's why she puts me down for select times uh in in that so people can come by and ask questions and wonder how we do this or do that or whatever she's the one we talked about a couple of years ago at one of the world of wheels that um does the custom windshields and stuff for you correct yeah yeah she does um she does pretty much all of our uh, windshields and back glass because generally we want to change something about it. She does make them out of acrylic. It's not it's not real glass, but you know it is DOT approved. You can run windshield wipers on it. It you know it's really a high quality product that she produces. And if you've priced getting one off glass made, 
Uh, acrylic is a very, very, very cheap option uh, compared to having a custom windshield made. It's uh, it's scary how much it costs. That's ultimately how I found Carmen was the windshield in the dark. We cut down a factory windshield, but the profile of those cars changed so much from top to bottom. The, the profile side to side changed that, man, we were going to have to do a ton more work to make it fit. So anyway, I called Carmen up and she hooked us up with, uh, a windshield and back glass, so. Well, this week I I don't get to go to SEMA. Like I said, an episode or two ago that I am doing some work around the house. It's much needed. But I went to, to help the listeners out, I went to a podcast convention on Saturday, and it was a very cool place. It is a tourist trap. It was in Nashville, but it was the old Marathon Automotive Factory. I guess its claim to fame is that's where American Pickers has their Nashville location. I didn't go into the picker store or anything, but if you're ever in Nashville, look up the building. Just stop by, walk in. You don't have to spend a dime. It's a lot of boutique shops and that. We had our convention thing at the the comedy club that might seat 40 people. Real cool event and that. But they have an excellent display of, I don't know if it's working, but refurbished, kind of cosmetically restored machinery from the turn of the century. The old belt-driven lathes and mills and drill presses, printing presses, all of this stuff is all displayed up and down the hallways of the place, and it was just absolutely gorgeous and a lot of information on the old Marathon Automotive Company, which I guess was about 1920s. Um, wait, 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 wait a second again. Here, I, I'm stop. You didn't immediately text the guy that is, would prefer to use a hundred to 200 year old technology immediately and let me know it was there. I figured I'd ta- be talking to you a couple days later. No, all right. So. That's wrong, John. Hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of wrong, but maybe that when you're coming down to visit me, Derek, swing through Nashville, it's literally spitting distance from the interstate stop by why would i why would i have to do it when i'm coming down to visit you i mean number one you're assuming i want to visit you number two nashville's a half hour from me there you go i should have had you go to the podcast thing that would have saved me a three-hour drive (laughs) just just stay on 65 and after you kind of go around the loop and head back south again it's right there on your right easy to find I've been there, too. It is really cool. Be careful not to drool. The floors are wood. You know, it's real real gorgeous architecture. That re- really nice revitali- revitalization thing. You can see it's definitely attracting tourists and, and such, but very, very much worth... I would have never stopped by to see the American Pickers, no offense to them, or any of the other stores in there, but the machinery itself is, you know, works to behold, but somebody that used to hang out with some of the uh, machinery at the Henry Ford, you know, this would be uh, just kind of boring stuff, or so I thought. And then I left Nashville, drove four hours to uh, Maker Festival in Atlanta the following day. You had a weekend behind the wheel. Uh, Real easy driving. Um, I will say the absolute worst, 
and I won't name them by name, but that was not a $400 a night hotel room I was put up in. And fortunately, they, I offered to pay them a lesser hotel's rate. They didn't have to comp me the room. They ended up comping me the room. But my one-bedroom king suite, which is traditionally what I will stay in on the road, became a twin bed, handicap accessible, no refrigerator, one TV, little corner room. And, yeah. <laughs> First world. Let me go. First world problems. Go ahead. <laughs> Let me go back and say you were in Nashville and you were in Atlanta and the driving wasn't bad. Nah, three hours up to Nashville, left at six in the morning, was there by 9.30 and got out of Nashville at five, got into Atlanta about 10. It, yeah, drive. Fine, the hotel was horrible. Finding at 10 o'clock at night and the whole lot of issues with that. Then I got up early Sunday morning and you know what? There's nobody out in Atlanta at 9 o'clock in the morning. I was able to drive around, <laughs> find a par- find true. a parking spot a half a block away from uh, the Georgia Railroad Depot where the Maker Festival was. Sit down, read a little bit, and then able to walk up to the Maker Festival and... Um, I guess it's actually the Atlanta Maker Fair. It's officially a Maker Fair and absolutely fabulous technology. A lot of young kids, 3D printing, a lot of drones, ham radio club, silk screening, uh, CNC machines, um, a lot of the, the wood type CNC machines. There was no Haas CNC and machining centers, but just a very good experience. Talked to three 16-year-old high school kids that are doing some cell genealogy project that somehow they do something and inject something and it will change the color of cell tissues to let you know the zinc percentage or the percentage of zinc in each cell and way beyond me. And But that's what these festivals are for. Uh, one of the weird things, and I'll say it here, even though it's not car-related, NASA had this huge tent there and my tax dollars are paying for it and i want to say i don't object to them spending my money this way i'm just upset that they have to spend my tax dollars this way and it was nasa and they were promoting the hashtag nasa spinoff and they had a really nice book that was published and they were it was almost a job fair recruitment thing but also a way to say we need to be funded. This is, and the book highlights, it's got to be 250 pages long. And it highlights all of the stuff that we use every day because of NASA and NASA creating it and the space agency needing it. And in talks, they were saying it was a, a way to kind of get out to the kids that are 10, 12 years old and say, this is why you maybe want to go to work for the NASA space agency as opposed to, the uh, say, the other two independent competitors, not calling them by name, but we know who they are. And it, it just kind of upset me that as important to NASA has been in my life and watching rocket launches and space shuttles and being involved with the Saturn V restoration a few years ago in Huntsville. And it's just upsetting that they have to spend millions of dollars a year to convince the general public that we need to give them millions of dollars a year so that they can continue space exploration and the research they do. 
So there's my little high horse uh, preaching uh, on that subject. But there, there was my weekend. So just just a day in Nashville and a day in Atlanta. You know, I'm going to say, you know, John, that if our listeners are in an area where Maker Fair or one of the Maker events is happening, go to it because it is incredible. The Henry Ford Museum hosts a Maker Fair every year. When I worked there, we took collections out, ran collections, did a lot of things at the Maker Fair to talk about the historical side of machinery and makers in the past, but it was incredible to see what was there of the makers of the future and what was being done. It's they're they're incredible and I just I it's amazing to go to one and see what people are doing and just the the inventiveness, if that's a word, um that's out there. It's it's awesome. I, I highly encourage going. It's definitely worth going to. It gives you, even as car people, it gives you an idea of what the kids are doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. There were three or four universities there with their Formula SAE programs or their Formula Baja programs. There was a, a workshop going on. It was being run by one of the local maker space things, and they were showing you how they modify their power wheels. And you can get on YouTube and look for modified power wheels. And these are people up in the voltage and amperage and, cha- and changing out the electric motors. And, you know, the the power wheels you buy at Toys R Us or Target or whatever big box store and looks like a Mini or a Viper or whatever. And so it's a way that these kids are getting to experience cars and whatever the technology is. And it'll eventually come back and, and play to cars. You know, the maker stuff is really uh, deep in my heart and passionate is watching these kids expand. And it kind of inspired me to the the little bit of where I wanted to discuss is that you've got, I'll sit here and I'll talk about all the stuff in the past and what I do now and Derek will and Will will. That sounds funny, Will will. But (laughs) Will will. Hey, little Will will. Where did we where did we come from and where did we start? You know, we, if you go way back into our podcast library, we each did a one minute thing, kind of talking about where we fell in love with cars, and thought we would expand on it a little bit, talking about the first car we owned that was a project, or that we actually did work to, or we modified, and whether we own that, and I don't know Derek and Will's answers to be honest. Whether you own that at 12 years old or 8 years old or whether, that you know, you didn't come in my, my case. I didn't have a car until I was 16 and a half and didn't do much with it, you know, through a sub box in the back of it and crashed it. There was the first body work I ever did to a car. And, and but where did, you know, what was the first really getting into a car, taking apart, doing things that I probably shouldn't would have upset the finance company and such. And who wants to go first on that topic? I I think both of you probably have much more interesting stories than me. You want the sarcastic answer or the real answer? Both. (laughs) All right. Well, the sarcastic answer would be the first project I had was a... Ooh. Now I got to dig for it. It was a 30, 
think it was a 33 Ford three window coupe. And it nice. was the it was the Revel edition. Plastic, glue together. <laughs> you know. Man, you you were I was, I was me. about I was about seven years old. It was a little hot rod, had a chop top, painted it black. I don't, guess what they call murdered it out. <laughs> don't laugh about that. What's really funny is some of you may have seen in press and auction catalogs and he's the guy who's now the new um, Ed China on Wheeler Dealers. He's the Ed to, to Mike. Uh, Ant, he does these full-size, one-once-scale pieces of art, which look, which basically look like, like that old Revel model kit while they're still on the spurs, but in a one-once-scale. And we have four pieces of this art at Barber's, a Ferrari, full-size Ferrari GTO, Aston Martin uh, DB, DBR, uh, Lotus 7, and a Lotus 11. And people see them, and it's amazing the number of kids, 10 and 12 years old, that don't have a clue what those are or what they represent. Everybody who's 60 years old laughs and loves them. If you want to see the full-size stuff, we swing by, buy your mission ticket, we, and you can see them. They're, they're great, fabulous pieces. But you're laughing, Derek, that's one of the things that has been lost or being lost to history is those model kits. Completely agree. And it's what got me my start in the car world in some ways. Yeah, uh, we had the 37 Ford out in the shop. We had some cars kicking around in the shop. Dad restored cars. I was always out in the shop working on something typically you know, bigger, full-size car. There we go. But really something that was my own creative world was the early model cars I built. And, you know, it was a sarcastic joke, but it's uh, sarcastic. It was a sarcastic answer, but it's also a truthful answer. It was the first projects I worked on. It's where I learned some of the early things I learned with even just spray painting something and making the spray paint look nice it's where you learn that it putting a decal on it's where i learned how to put a decal on a all these little decal. details yeah and, and it's all the little details that i mean really do matter when you start moving up to working on a real car you know the attention to detail all of that is still something that you have to pay attention to when you're working on real cars so yeah, it's sarcastic in some ways because it's not a major project like a, a full-size car that you're restoring. But it is really where my first projects were. And then, of course, from there, went on to working on vehicles in the shop with Dad that weren't necessarily ours. But then, as we've talked about in the past, really my first major project of my own that was a restoration was the 1974 Pontiac GTO, which was supposed to be my high school driver, you know, car, but turned out that it was it was a, a fairly rare model of a GTO. So my dad decided, you know, he didn't really want me driving that to school on a day-to-day -day basis and risk it being damaged in some way at school, some kid deciding that they didn't like that I had 
a nice car and key scratch it or do something stupid. So after we got that car finished, we moved into, we bought a totaled out 1993 Chevrolet Beretta GT and rebuilt that entire car it basically had the front end ripped off of it in a major accident at a intersection where a guy ran a stop sign and i had to rebuild it pull the frame make sure everything was done right put it back together and that became my daily driver to and from school so those were really my first two big major projects where i learned a lot of what you know it it takes to restore cars to bring cars back be able to drive them but you know that full circle back to the the first answer i did learn a lot from model cars and and like you say john it is a bygone era i don't think there's a lot of people a lot of kids doing model cars anymore i actually still have a couple unopened model cars on a shelf that hopefully one day I I hope I'll build them. I love doing model cars. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It's a great way to learn some things. And it's also a great way to be creative because nobody's saying you have to paint it this color or do this. You can get creative and do things and have fun and learn on them. And build them a whole lot quicker than you build a big car, a real car. Now that depends how busy you are. I think I have one that I've been working on for about 10 years now. (laughs) I've got one that I started when we were in school together, Will, and it's actually just above me here in the attic in its box. (laughs) Put to the side a little bit, but... Okay, hours go. You don't have near the hours. (laughs) Whether you finish it in in a month or 10 years... And and the money. Well, I read the side of the box, and it said something about eight to twelve years. So I have even. <laughs> you got to you got to try to hit that just right, you know. No, but I will. I guess when I end up at Michael's, or but Michael's has a little model section still, and I've got to walk through that every time we're in buying oh, yeah. Cricut supplies or something like that. So Hobby Lobby still has a small. Um, model car selection as well. Now, the interesting thing, John, and it kind of plays into, I think, more of your and my work in the museum field and some of the things we've done in our past, model car, you know, model car building gives you some great patience and attention to detail for some of the conservation work that we do in the museum field. And getting in and and very small pieces getting placed with adhesive into very, you know, certain locations. And I think it, it plays in well to that museum world of conservation where you've got to be super delicate and get into very little tiny places and, and do certain things and try not to mess it up. Reassembling things with little or no instruction and making that whatever piece matched the piece on the box because again you know again you're restoring or conserving from a photograph or your realities from a based on a photograph and we all want to build that model that's pictured on the front of the box 
to get there, that's a lot more time than... All right, Will, wow us. Uh, I won't wow you, I promise. (laughs) Oh, well, my first vehicle that I call my own uh, was a 1983 two-wheel drive K5 Blazer, which I still own, by the way. It was uh, originally a forestry vehicle with a wore-out 305, wore-out three turbo 350 transmission with some horrible exhaust. And my dad didn't own a restoration shop, but he built his own personal cars in his shop uh, after work and on the weekends and stuff like that. So I was always out there helping him. Uh, work on a 56 Chevrolet uh, that I basically grew up in the back seat in that y'all have heard me talk about. So, you know, working on it a little bit growing up. But my first one was the Blazer. Um, my dad bought it for me. And it was stock suspension, stock motor, transmission, interior, all that stuff. And I was really into vehicles being really low to the ground, which I still am. So that was the first thing I wanted to do was lower it. So I did, uh, got all the suspension in for it and, and lowered it. And, uh, naturally it wasn't low enough from the kit that I bought. So I started, you know, modifying spring pockets and, you know, moving hangers and shackles and, you know, trying to get it as low as I possibly could and, and still be able to drive it. Uh, daily because it, it was my daily driver that's what I had so you know after after doing the suspension work it was time to add a add a nice sounding stereo so I you know my dad wouldn't buy me stereo stuff he, he hated the subs and all that stuff so you know traded around and got some subs and an amp and a cd player and learned how to wire all that up on my own so got all that done and by that time it was i was about to graduate high school and go to mcpherson college and i couldn't drive it that far with that wore out motor and transmission so uh, we built a uh, a pretty radical small block chevrolet for it uh built we we didn't build the transmission then. Uh, I actually wound up having to uh, change transmissions in the Kansas winter in a storage unit. <laughs> we all did some uh, sort of work in a storage oh, unit. <laughs> oh, man, that was rough. I think it was January. Yeah, I know it was January because I came home for Christmas vacation and my dad had the transmission built. I rode home with a buddy and he had it built we took it back with us after christmas break and that's when i put it in you know that was my first real experience with my own you know personal my vehicle um my dad and i did drag race um, at that same time so we had a 67 camaro full tube you know drag race car that that we raced just about every weekend and we would travel to Memphis and Atlanta, and so we wasn't just you know racing local. We were uh, we were hitting some of the bigger tracks, and you know 
maintenance on a drag car can, you know, it, it can be pretty intense sometimes. So, you know, building motors, transmissions, setting the suspension up different for different tracks. Uh, this was before, you know, fuel injection really made it into to drag racing. So, or, or at least at our level of drag racing, there might've been some doing it, but uh, this was 95, 96, 97. So when I was 17, uh, dad put me behind the wheel of, of the race car. So not only was I kind of really in charge of keeping everything operational and tire pressures and cooling it down between rounds and all that stuff, I was also driving. So, you know, that, that taught me a lot right there and really the drag racing is really what sparked my interest more uh, than um, going to a car show and just sitting around. Because that's what, that's what we did when I was growing up. And I finally told my dad that, you know, I like drag racing better than that. So he had a 46 Chevrolet that he had built from the ground up. I was a, I was a little too young to help him a lot, but I did. I helped him some on it. And, uh, he sold it and bought this drag car and me and him went drag racing. So, so between the, between the drag racing and, and working on my blazer, that was really the first two projects in my life that really sparked my interest and, uh, got me wanting to pursue, uh, you know, a career in, in customizing cars. See, nothing didn't start with very exciting cars. I mean, Derek did have a GTO, but hey, I had a '93 Beretta GT, man. I've got. I, it's funny <laughs> Come because on. I, I, both of you got uh, both of the second cars you've brought up. I've got a couple of stories about '79 Impalas. I've got a couple of stories about Beretta GTs. It's, it's just kind of odd that your first cars. Nah, not really. I can't touch. But your second ones. I, Derek said a couple of weeks ago that we tinkered with cars as kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I kind of corrected him and said, no, you know, I lived in a subdivision that you couldn't work on cars and have project cars and things taken apart. And Yes, John was deprived as a child. Yes, I, I, <laughs> I, I lived in the world of the HOA, which I have avoided in my adult life like the plague and will still continue to avoid the HOA. If you want to know why, read about the guy that um, in the upcoming issue of Sports Car Market who got in trouble with his HOA for parking at his uh, Sherman tank in front of his house for a couple of weeks. You know, <laughs> what is That's wrong? Awesome. What is so wrong about parking a Sherman tank in front of your house? That, that really in the, that mean, was his question because there was no rule in the HOA that prohibited parking a Sherman tank in front of your house. Boat. Trailer, recreational vehicle, tractor, yes. Sherman tank. No, recreational. No well, the, the HOA called it a recreational vehicle, but him as an attorney didn't think it really was a recreational vehicle. Whole nother story there. But at some point, let's see, I got my first car, and like I said, I threw a kicker two, Super 2 sub box in the back, two 10-inch subs and a Targa amp, I think, with a... Pioneer Super Tuner head unit, like everybody did in the 80s. I didn't do the 
four by tens in the rear window or the the surface speakers like everybody did with their Monte Carlos and Grand Prix. That was the car of my youth. I, I had my Omni 024 with the big sub box in the back and that became, uh, I had to get a pickup because I wanted a low rider convertible pickup and I bought a Mazda B2, or my dad let me buy a Mazda B2000. He was a really bad influence on me because anytime I wanted a new car, he put a little stipulation and whether it be, you need to have a job or you need to do this, I'd go do it, get a new car. And here I am, 46 years old and 50 some cars into my, those are cars that I've owned that are actually have had plates and driven on the street. So I've uh, had enough cars for many lifetimes and still trade them fairly often. <clears throat> but I got the Mazda and that was my J.C. Whitney special thing. You bought the J.C. Whitney hubcaps and tried to lower it a little bit, but not messing with the suspension, just changing tire sizes and the tonneau cover and little things like that. I did do it. Some blue, I guess, lights. They weren't LEDs at the time. Uh, some little car stereo and the next car I got was my 85 CRX SI. That's the one that I probably got more into, but it wasn't performance-wise. It was the $5,000 CRX with $10,000 of car stereo in it and did some competitive car stereo stuff and could hit some solid SBL numbers and cause pain to some of my friends. They could only cruise with me one night a week, but... It was always those little tinker, tinkering things. I learned, you know, learned electronics. I learned wiring. I learned positive, negative, phase, out of phase, what two ohm subs were, what one ohm subs were, four ohm subs. Playing with all of that, learned the electronics with the CRX. So each car brought something different. And then when I got done with the CRX, that's when I really went crazy with a car, and I got my. Uh, 88 Azuzu that Will and I have alluded to, and I have now found two for sale in four or five weeks of talking about it on the podcast. If anybody knows where a good Azuzu truck is, let me know. And that truck, I bought it, bought in January, I believe, January or February. And beginning of March, I cut the roof off of it. Into March, I finally got the convertible kit installed on it so I could put the roof back on. Amazingly, it was kind of a dry, warm March for central Illinois. A lot of coats. Yeah, top still leaked a little bit. And then I had a small accident in it, and that created the two-tone color scheme that I developed and, you know, lowered that truck and learn torsion bars and lowering blocks and bump stops and C-notches. And that truck kind of taught me everything I needed to know about suspension work. And eventually the head gasket blew. And, well, why put a head gasket in when you could put a, you know, 350 Chevy motor in it? So we put a 350 Chevy in it with a turbo 350 and left the stock differential. And it was problematic, but it was also fun because it, it was faster than the, the rich kids' five O's. And <laughs> you get their girlfriends checking you out at a stoplight and your convertible lowrider, and the only thing they could do is, you know, take off from the line really fast, and you could take off faster. And it was kind of a feel-good moment for, the you know, the poor kid in the rich area of town. You know, those four vehicles kind of combined to create 
the the knowledge I have in the years that have went on building a you know a really radical Chevy lowrider which I never quite finished uh, doing the Japanese motor swaps and the lowered CRXs that later on in my life will experience the uh, Japanese motored uh, dual overhead cam ZC CRX that I used to own that I had in the fresh first year freshman year at uh, McPherson which then became, you know, I grew up, I got a, I think a sh- Nissan truck. In two, two years of co- uh, college at McPherson with Will, I think I had the CRX, I had a Nissan truck, I had a Dodge truck, and I think I finally left with a Chrysler Concord LXI, which... Yeah, and you had uh, you had a project at home, too. Yeah, I had I was, was, was building that, the low-cost, which was a Lotus 7 replica that you built built from a book. And got that about halfway done before I sold it to buy a my Stalker V6 kit car, which I got about three quarters of the way done when I sold it for a Lotus, or traded it for a Lotus Europa, because I had bought a Caterham Seven and why I was building the 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 Stalker, so I didn't need the Stalker anymore, and I was just looking at those Monday, I think, on the computer. I was talking to somebody about it and. We were we were talking about one of the uh, kits that we've assembled at, at the museum for demonst- demonstration purposes, and how this guy develops them. And some of these kit car people are amazing. You call them up, and they know they, they why they build the kit cars. You don't know, but they build these kit cars, and they you can give them a problem, and they know how to solve it in their heads. They're just wonderful engineers, and. Uh, Dennis Brunton, who started the the Stalker Company, uh, it's no longer his. He sold it off to somebody and went into selling AVO shocks and things like that. But if you ever had a problem, all the owners would say when you're autocrossing it or tracking it, you could call him and tell him what track you were at, what was going wrong, and he had driven it and raced the, every track in the world, it seemed, and he'd tell you exactly what to do. And these guys would, you know, Call them on Saturday night. Say this is what's happening on happening on the track. You do the change Sunday morning, and you'd be three seconds a lap faster Sunday afternoon. And that's what made the cars. That's what sold the, the cars. And I think there's over 200 stalker kits built now, which is a phenomenal number for a kit car, especially in this world. And when I bought mine, it was uh, designed around a 2.8 liter um, V6 out of a Chevrolet S10. Used a lot of Chevy S10 components. And now you can buy them with the 2.8 option, 3.8 liter supercharged option. You can buy them LS powered with 450, 525, or 600 horsepower, I think, in a car that weighs, if you're if you're lucky and you really do everything wrong, it'll weigh 1,400, 1,500 pounds. I mean, <laughs> it's just ridiculous performance. But that, that kind of explains... Where I came from is just, you know, started with not being able to work on a car and very limited tools to just wrenching on this, wrenching on that over the years. And, you know, now I'll be 100% honest. You know, I'm working on a race car that used to be raced by Paul Newman. It's one of five in the world. And I'm working on a Lotus uh, Mark 10. It's one of five in the world. And it's the second one in the in my life that I've worked on. The museum owns two of the five. And this one's a completely radical. It's the only one built in this specification. So you can you start with your Dodge Omni 024, put in a car stereo in it, 
and building hot rod Hondas. And then all of a sudden you're building, you know, building quarter million, $300,000 irreplaceable cars or Will's case, you start with a K, you know, K5 Blazer and your grandma's Impala and you're building half million dollar, you know, Riddler contenders and your, you know, Derek's world, you work on literally just about everything from your rarest brass era stuff to, you know, some of the, you know, coolest Corvettes ever made. It's, uh, I guess we all, all get there some way. It's different roads. There's millions of miles of roads in this world. And really, they all will, they will all get you somewhere. You know, some of them will get you to, Be- those roads will get you to Beverly Hills or, They'll get you to insert slum name here. Hoax Bluff, Alabama. (laughs) Yeah, I think I think the the cool thing, yeah, the cool thing about what we've all talked about, and John, you were kind of summing it up there, is we all started playing with cars, doing different things. And we all learned a little bit different aspects of the car world and doing different things to cars. Will was lowering them, putting airbags in them, doing all the stuff that he likes to do. John was out there starting projects, not finishing them. No, uh, <laughs> actually, I'm I'm really good about starting projects and not finishing them. I didn't tell you how long these two but, projects at work have lasted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you were out there learning, as you said, you know, lowering and chopping a top off, but also all your electronic stuff, the stereos, the the amps, the speakers. The way I grew up, I was learning about restoring a car to its factory aspects and factory, you know, out the door, what it was like when you bought it at a dealership and and returning a car to that look. And we all have learned different things. We all have different skill sets. And I think that's, that's another important thing to think about when you're getting into this field, when you're growing up. There, there's not a single one of us in the car field that knows every single thing well and how to do it. Yes, most of us know how to work on most aspects of a car, most parts of a car. But we all have our special specialty areas. We all know something better than everything else. And I think sometimes that might scare people when they're getting into the hobby or even getting into the business is that, oh, I I don't know how to work on this or I don't know how to work on that really well. Well, that's why we have professionals that do different things. We have Will and the hot rod guys, the builders that build out of this world hot rods. We have guys like John in this world that have really focused their experience on things like Lotus, you know, they're, they're kind of a brand, I would call you a fairly, you know, brand specific restorer and someone who really knows Lotus cars better than a lot of people in this world. 
And then from the, the aspect I come from, I'm great at researching a car's history, knowing how it came out of the factory and being able to return it to what it looked like when it came out the door or, you know, in the case of a historic vehicle, returning it to a certain point in its life and how it looked at that time. And, you know, I, th- I just think that's an interesting thing to point out and and talk about because you don't have to worry about knowing everything in in the automotive world. We We all have different aspects and passions in this world. And focus on that and and make something of it like you know like will did like john did you know just stick with your passion and don't worry about some of the other stuff how do you guys feel about that yeah i'm um will's interviewing people right now yep (laughs) he's trying to process it all and text message at the same time well I i was actually texting yes i was um i'm not gonna lie uh, our dog got out at the house and, uh, you know, um, so anyway, um, yeah, two, two things that, um, I would just like to touch back on what John said and, and you said, Derek, uh, one was, you're not going to start out at the top. You're just, you're not going to start out building, uh, your dream car. Very, very rarely. Does that happen? In some in some cases, it, it, it does. Um, you know, my dad bought me a forty Ford pickup truck when I was seventeen years old, eighteen years old. Um, I still have it, but it's still in the same exact way that it was when he bought it for me. I just, you know, he bought it for me for me to build with my time and my money, and you know, I, I have not had the time or the money to really build it the way that I want to build it. Now, I, I I have gathered up parts over the last 20 years uh, of the way that I want to build it. And, you know, I'm getting close to getting started on it. So you're not going to start at the top. That's It's just not going to happen. And And, you know, one of the things Derek brought up was, you know, you don't have to know every aspect of building a car. You know, that that's one of the things that, that we kind of rely on here at the shop is I'm not an engine builder. I'm not going to go out and promise somebody that I can build them, you know, a 1,500 horsepower LS motor and get it in their car and get it running. I don't know how to do that. I have people that do know how to do that, though. So I, I lean on people for, for, you know, motor and transmission work. And... and machining i'm not a machinist we have a lot of one-off parts made for the the, for the cars we build you know i lean on you know professional machinists to do that uh don't get me wrong i would i would love to be a a top-notch engine builder i would love to be a a super badass machinist um but i mean you look at it there's guys out there that do that for a living. They're really, really good at it. Utilize those guys. Uh, use some outside sources. It's okay. It, I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's your ideas. It's your vehicle or your customer's vehicle. There's there's nothing wrong with with asking for advice or 
even having somebody else do a little something for you. Uh, interior work, that's another thing that we don't do in-house. Uh, there's some really awesome interior guys out there. Uh, so that's, that's, that's really the three biggest things that we, we lean on people and we lean on them pretty hard, you know, to make sure that they meet the quality that, that we demand. And, uh, and there's people out there that, that will, uh, whether it's the highest quality or a budget friendly piece that you just need to have made or a car painted or the interior done, you know, there's high end guys and there's, there's. There's guys that, that, I mean, I hate to say cheap, but they're not, they're not cheap. They still do good work for, um, less money. So there you go. And the thing I would add to that, Will, is you don't have to know everything. That's right. You don't. But in it helps. Also, don't let, if <laughs> You need to know. You need to know a little bit about it. <clears throat> a little bit of a little bit about everything. I, I but know it all. I just can't remember don't... it all at once. <laughs> there you go. But also, don't let. Don't become closed-minded. That's right. If you don't know something, you might not become the best at it. But heck, take a chance and learn. You know, that's the fun part of it. You can always learn something new. Well, let, let me tell you something that my dad told me when I was a teenager growing up. And, I, man, I, I use it a lot. Part Sit of, down, <laughs> shut up, go to your room. It, listen. That was it. Listen. <laughs> listen. <laughs> he did tell me that a lot, too. But one of, one of his sayings was, he'd always say, Son, part of being good is knowing what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so... You're diving off into something and you don't know what it is. You know, it's real easy to pick up a phone. Everybody's got a phone in their pocket now. You know, you don't have to leave the shop and go in the house and get the phone book. You just pull your phone up. And you know what? If you don't know nobody, search it on Google. Google knows. And then hit call. Call them. So, uh... Anyway, yeah, so part of being good is knowing what you don't know. And we thought your dad wasn't going to be with us tonight. <laughs> it, it's all, He's been with us twice already. <laughs> it's all very true, and I, I say a lot that I know how to do, and that was part of going to McPherson for me. I know how to do just about every aspect of a car restoration, I just cannot do it well. There's people that know how to do everything better than me. And my job, and I've always, I went into restoration of managing restorations, is knowing where to find those people that can do it and knowing what my limits are, not being afraid to tell people, this is what my limit is. We're going to be better off if we bring this service in or that service. And, you know, I can make a body for a car, but the guy that can afford it's going to be dead long before I finish. It's just like, like Will's dad said, don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. Don't be afraid to ever learn. Don't be afraid to admit what you don't know because part, part of restoration, part of hot rod building, part of conservation is constantly learning new ways and having open minds, figuring out what you need to do to do it right and Derek and I's case, it's impossible sometimes 
the terms unobtainium. We might have the only one of these ever in existence, and you can't risk destroying it because you don't know. You need to be honest with yourself, and if you work for somebody, honest with your boss that you don't know and we need to do something with it. And if it gets destroyed at that point, it's because your boss made the decision that maybe you should learn on it. In Will's case, he makes everything himself, but <laughs> there's still things, you know, we've, we talked about in the pre-show about certain parts that cost as much as some of our cars when they're done. And he can't go to a client and say, I'm sorry, we have $10,000 into this part, but it's wrong. We need to start over. That That's where his check and balance is. We all have to have our checks and balances. And preferably, they're large checks. Very large checks that pay the bills. But on... on oh, oh, wrong wrong checks and balances. I'm going to say, unfortunately, I had the conversation with somebody yesterday, I think, and those checks aren't necessarily that big, but the work's very rewarding. <laughs> it sounds bad, but I, I tell a lot of people every day, I'm 46 years old. I have yet to work a day in my life because I enjoy what I do. And I've done for 25 years what many people work their entire lives to retire to do. They work and to be 65, and then they can go restore a car. I've got to do it dozens of times in my life and get paid to do it. So th there's a lot of reward in, in that. You know, I kind of joke that now that I'm getting to retirement age, I want a desk job. <laughs> so I'm just living my life backwards. I'm I'm doing it the right way, I guess. Yeah, there, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, you, you, you're not going to get rich owning a shop, a small shop like mine. Um, yeah, you'll be able to pay your bills and 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 have a have go on vacation with your family and do a few things like that but you know you're you're not going to become some mega rich dude that has ferraris in his garage uh just running a small hot rod shop like what i have uh, not saying you can't you know branch out into other things and uh and do other things with your skill set to get there because you can um so just keep that in mind. It's it's very, very rewarding, but you ain't going to get rich doing it. That's for sure. And I think with that... And you're not going to get rich in, a non in the nonprofit museum world. <laughs> well, there you go. But it is very rewarding, as John said. That's right. You get to work on a lot of cool things. Uh, we've talked about it on the podcast before uh, for both John and I. It's not just cars. In our careers, we have worked on non-automotive artifacts that we are both fortunate and lucky and amazed that we got to work on them. There have definitely been those items in my life that I still can't believe that I've had the privilege to touch and do some of the stuff I have. I think with that, we're at... Where you're norm, I'm assuming most of you get tired of listening to us each week. We're around that hour. No, that's about that. Hour. That's five minutes yeah. in. We're at, well, we're at that hour mark. We appreciate you hanging out with us this long. If you do have any show topics or suggestions for us, we really, we really need to start listening to you guys. 
go ahead and send us a, you know information. Contact us Facebook, Instagram. We don't really do the Twitter. Uh, email through the website. And while you're at the website, look around there. We have some uh, shop suggestions and tools and reading material. And if you think you can do this better than us, there's even some suggestions on some of the podcast gear that we have. And they're all Amazon affiliate links. Click those. Throws a couple of bucks our way and makes it really easy for you to shop on Amazon. And even when you go to Amazon, go through one of our links. Even if you don't buy what we're suggesting, it's it still helps keep us buy... <laughs> Helps fund buying some additional equipment for the show. And with that, I'm out of here. <laughs>